Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a fascinating new history book, and we interview the author of that book. And today, I'm pleased to say that we have Brian Vick on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Congress of Vienna, Power and Politics After Napoleon. I imagine that many people know uh, the, the phrase... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a fascinating new history book, and we interview the author of that book. And today I'm pleased to say that we have Brian Vick on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Congress of Vienna, Power and Politics After Napoleon. I imagine that many people know uh, the, the phrase Congress of Vienna, but I also imagine many people, if they're like me, don't know exactly what it was. So I was very pleased, at least in my case, to, to read the book, to, to learn a little bit more about it. Brian has written a, a fascinating work about a really fascinating and relevant topic. So we should congratulate him for that and thank him. And without any further ado, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. So could you begin the interview? you by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, I uh, teach European history at Emory University in Atlanta. And um, I, as with this book, I try to be uh, a real European historian. My background is definitely with German-speaking Europe, so the German states and Austria, and mostly in the, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And could you uh, tell us why? That's a very big that's a, that's a broad. That's a, there's a lot of stuff there. Let's put it that way. Could you tell us why you wrote uh, this particular book? I mean, and let me say that there are, I think, a lot of books about the Congress of Vienna. I think uh, even Henry Kissinger wrote one or something about it. So mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a pretty. Didn't he write a book about the Congress of Vienna, something like that? Um, yep. So so it's pretty well. Uh, I don't know if it's well trod, but. Uh, but but yeah, there's a lot of other stuff there. So could you tell us why you chose to book to write a book about about the Congress? Yes, I can give you a couple reasons for that. Um, one kind of how I came to the topic. Uh, my previous book was on the uh, Frankfurt Parliament in 1848, mm-hmm. when there was an effort to create a unified German nation state out of all of these different separate German states that had existed up up to that point. And several of the characters um, who I was dealing with there, who either were in the parliament or were part of the intellectual background that I was examining on issues like national identity and treatment of minorities, had actually um, been at the Congress of Vienna as well. And so I had already kind of started to notice um, just how uh, many such people had you know, life histories that had crossed through Vienna during the time of, of the Congress or had even been active there. Um, I mean, probably the most famous one today would be the young Jacob Grimm of, uh, you know, German fairy tales, name, uh, who was in the Frankfurt Parliament, but as a young man had been part of the hmm. delegation of his state of, of Hessen. Anyway, and I, I began to see that not just in terms of the diplomacy, but for things like the development of ideas of nationhood or various kinds of uh, cultural trends having to do with romanticism and, 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 uh, and so on, that the Vienna Congress was uh, a really a tremendous site of political and cultural exchange at many levels, not just in terms of the diplomacy. So, for example, 
the uh, Prussian second uh, plenipotentiary or second main negotiator at the Congress, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who was also a uh, linguist and uh, thinker of, of some renown, even in his period, um, had uh, started learning Slovene uh, <laughs> from one of the uh, Slovene National Awakeners who was there and who also worked in, in uh, the court library and had connections with Metternich and some of Metternich's collaborators and, uh, and so on. And Jacob Graham, in addition to doing his politics, was also already starting to promote a uh, collection of folk poetry and folk songs and, and that sort of thing while he was there. Anyway, so there was lots of this going on. And that kind of leads me to the second point about why I thought I should write this book. Because you're right, it is uh, something that has been covered numerous times, somewhat in, in popular histories, somewhat in diplomatic histories. But the um, I, I would say that the popular histories often tend to include the idea of kind of the dancing Congress and all of the festivals and, and parties that were going on uh, while the uh, leaders of, of Europe and the negotiators were there. But the um, diplomatic histories tended you know, not to, to deal with that as much or just kind of present it as uh, you know, an interference in the, the real business that was going on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was trying to bring these two things together to try to not just present the uh, festivities and cultural aspects of the Congress as a pure backdrop to what was going on. They were really an essential part of the context, and as I came to see increasingly, it had quite a bit to do, uh, quite a bit of influence on the diplomacy itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I realized that you know there was the room for, the really a need for, a new book that would try to analyze these different levels of, of the Congress of Vienna, and not just to understand the Congress itself better, and the politics that, that came out of it, but to understand better the processes by which politics and diplomacy worked in that period, after Napoleon's defeat, and moving on into the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So the book was also meant as much as anything, to try to tell something about the political culture of Europe in, in that period. So, mm-hmm. so kind of look once more at the Congress in a cultural and diplomatic history uh, sense, but then also to look more broadly at what was going on in European politics and culture in that period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there something called the new diplomatic history? Because I think this is it. Because you, if you see what I mean, you vastly expand the range of sources that a diplomatic historian would use in the book. Yes, there there is, and this isn't quite um, the new diplomatic history as it's often done. But I I do uh, draw inspiration from these um, this uh, new field. Essentially, it's not so new now, but uh, relatively new. I mean, I really and, don't. I really don't um, know. Yeah, I a contribution to it. Yeah, that, that's not a rhetorical question. I really don't know whether there is a thing in new diplomatic history, but as I was reading the book, I, I used to study actually uh, with a guy named Walter Mc, uh, McDougall, and he was a diplomatic historian, and the things that he wrote are nothing like this, <laughs> I have to tell you, because you do. I mean, you, maybe you should talk about that a little bit. There's just a vast range of sources uh, that you use that the uh, a sort of typical diplomatic historian wouldn't use. Right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the diplomatic histories that are written, not just at the Congress of Vienna, but more generally, you know, tended to kind of focus on the main 
statesman, you know, kind of the secretary of state equivalent or foreign secretary equivalent of, of the various main powers. Um, and so one of the things that I did was, you know, I'm still certainly looking at Castlereagh for the British and Metternich for the Austrians and, and so on. But um, I tried even within the realm of diplomatic documents to get beneath kind of that very top layer and realize that decision-making was you know, usually a process that involved a lot of advisors within the various administrations for the, the main powers. Um, but more than that, it was also a discussion that was going on um, with representatives of a lot of the smaller powers. And again, not only, you know, necessarily their uh, titular main negotiator, but some of the other people in their delegations. So I was trying to get down to uh, you know, a deeper and broader level of discussion among the diplomats to look for the, these kinds of effects on the decision-making, um, to step away a little bit from this, this real focus on, on Talleyrand and Metternich and, and so on. But you're right, there was a, a much wider range of sources that, that I looked at than even the diplomatic ones, um, so that, among other things, uh, you know, I was very interested in the political role that women played, particularly elite women, um, in salon culture and, and so on. So I was looking as much as possible at some of the sources uh, either about the salons or that they, the salon leaders themselves had, had left, because many of them did write memoirs that um, were either eventually published or in a few cases you know, are still just in, in manuscript in a library or, or archive somewhere. Um, but then I was also trying to bring in, uh, you know, information about the, the music scene and the festivities and uh, some of the material uh, culture and artistic culture, things that were sold on the market at the time, um, you know, all of which helped to influence the development of uh, public opinion uh, in, in this period. And, uh, you know, part of the climate in which the, the negotiations took place. And then speaking of public opinion, I also then was looking quite a bit at um, in articles in the press, uh, some of which, when you look more closely and scratch beneath the surface, you find out were actually written either by people working for some of the statesmen uh, or, uh, you know, kind of voluntarily people were trying to do what they thought maybe the the governments would, would appreciate in supporting this or that cause. Um, so there was a lot of effort to, well, let's say, influence rather than manipulate uh, public opinion uh, and, and on many different sides. So it was, it was hotly contested. Anyway, so yes, there was a, a wide range of, of sources here, and the traditional diplomatic historians would probably not write about say, um, images of Tsar Alexander on painted glass, uh, this new technique of painted glass at the time. But it was something that I was trying to, to bring into the picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was by way of background, so to say. Could, so could you, uh, in, in the briefest possible way, uh, tell us what the Congress of Vienna was uh, and why it occurred? Right. Um, the Congress of Vienna first important thing to realize about it is that it comes after the defeat of Napoleon in 1814, but 
the Allies who defeated Napoleon had already met in Paris in the spring of 1814 to make peace with France, with this now post-Napoleonic France, because the Bourbon king, uh, Louis XVIII, had come back to reclaim his, his throne. And so, to that extent, peace had already been made, but not all aspects of the peace settlement for European territories had been made, because here you have to remember that Napoleon's empire extended widely through Europe, uh, either areas directly administered and ruled from, from Paris, from France, and this goes all the way into the Adriatic, you know, parts of Croatia and so on, for example, um, but also uh, then all of the kind of sister or satellite um, regimes that Napoleon had had set up, some of which were ruled by members of his family, others of which weren't, but were you know, in close cooperation. So um, more than half of the people living in, in Europe at this time were facing some form of regime change, um, where their rulers were going to change, or at least the form of government under which they were to be ruled would change. And so um, much of this was going to have to be spelled out in a European peace settlement. And they couldn't settle all this in Paris, when they did make peace with France, at least. So they knew there was going to have to be a diplomatic Congress of Vienna. But some of the planning for this event had actually started to occur even before Napoleon's final defeat, where if the Allies finally got the confidence that they were going to win the, uh, the war, finally, after many years of unsuccessful efforts, and um, so they were also partly planning a, uh, planning a big peace celebration. Some of this went on in Paris when they marched in. Uh, some more went on in London over the summer, where they negotiated a little bit, but were mainly celebrating the peace at the uh, expense of Prince Regent there. And um, at the same time, though, the Austrians in particular, uh, you know, didn't want to let the, the British have all of the, the glory of the celebrations. So they, for that reason, in part, wanted to bring in um, the uh, representatives of, of European governments and, and armies to Vienna. So that, you know, it's, it's wrong to think of the Congress of Vienna as only having been a diplomatic event. Even even in the planning for it, they always knew that there was going to be a lot of uh, you know, the merrymaking and, and public festivities and parties and so on uh, going on in, in the background. And then the Congress of Vienna, what makes it so, I think, fascinating, resplendent, even unique, and unique is a word that I'm usually allergic to, but it really wasn't <laughs> unprecedented. Too. Yeah, because, yeah, well, you know, everything's unique when you get yeah, right, right. right down to it. Yeah. But in this case, we'll just say it was unprecedented that so many of the, you know, not just the statesmen, but the, the rulers of so many European states, um, including most of the great powers, found themselves in one place at one time. And then partly for that reason, with the emperors and, and kings and princes descending upon the place and all of their entourages, um, a lot of other people decided that they wanted to see, wanted to see this unprecedented event. So, you know, artists and composers and um, important 
figures from European society and culture also decided to make their way to Vienna at this time in large numbers. So that really a significant fraction of the European political and social and cultural elite was in Vienna for the Congress. You know, that brings me back to that sense of just how much of a site of exchange it, mm-hmm. it became. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can I ask a logistical question? Where did they all stay? I mean, I assume that uh, Vienna didn't have a huge hotel infrastructure like it does today. I mean, if you have several thousand, even I don't know how many people came. Yeah, it was in the tens of thousands. Um, <laughs> <Where did> they stay? <laughs> and the prices went through the roof. You know, there were a lot of rooms to rent. Um, it was an imperial capital, so there was you know, usually a fair amount of coming and going, but this did certainly strain <laughs> its, uh, its capacities, not just in the, um, the central city, um, you know, kind of still the, the main tourist area, but all out into the suburbs, you know, people were scrambling to find, to find rooms. The main delegations and the main rulers and so on were actually kept um, in the Imperial Palace, both for purposes of overnight accommodations and um, feeding, and it was not only breakfast that they that they covered in this case, um, but you know elaborate banquets and, and so on as well. Um, but even say the the main Prussian statesmen, while the king was you know wined and dined in the palace, they had to find something out, outside. You know, even some of the major powers had to rent a palace or part of a palace, or for some of the smaller delegations, you know, rent some hopefully fairly nice rooms in this or that um, apartment building. So it was quite a logistical task for the individual delegations to find um, accommodations, but then also for the imperial government, the Habsburgs themselves, mm-hmm. to be able to lodge and feed and transport um, all, all of these people. Um, so they needed hundreds of carriages, you know, thousands of uh, horses and uh, new uniforms as much as possible to try to look good while, while doing all of this for the um, people who would be uh, you know, serving in, in various capacities or the officials. Uh, army and, and the troops and so on. So it, it really was um, a major logistical task, and it was extremely expensive at a time when the government was already rather short of short of funds. Mm-hmm. But they thought it was a good investment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, and I think it's important to point out that essentially these uh, people and these entourages and hangers-on and people that wanted to be seen or make the scene, I guess as we would say, they essentially moved there for several months. They were mm-hmm. going to live there. Right, and they didn't know how long it would be. Um, they were hoping maybe it would be more like six weeks, two months, maybe three months, but they certainly didn't know that they were going to be there from the end of September until June of 1815. Um, so you know, it really did um, kind of extend their expectations and, and often their ability to pay so that um, some people were you know, running up debts. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask specifically about that, because if you plan to stay a month or two and uh, you're going to stay five or six, then you run out of cash. So there must have been a lot of people lending other people money. Yes. 
So, um, you know, some of it would be maybe bankers from back home for, for the various um, delegations, but often it was, in fact, uh, some of the bankers in Vienna itself who they, they would turn to mm-hmm. for so, uh, credit, basically. Yeah, so how did they amuse themselves? I imagine they had to. You know, it gets kind of boring just waiting for... Um, news of one or another conference to come out of the palace. So, I mean, what did they do for to not put to find a point on it for fun? Right. Well, um, yeah, and some of it probably does come under the heading of just fun or just satisfying personal curiosity. <laughs> uh, quite a bit of the activities, though, that were fun were also political in nature, mm-hmm. or at least could be kind of turned to that purpose, because a lot of them were for socializing purposes at you know, various balls or, or parties, or if they were wanting to show up at salons uh, of an evening, because practically every evening of the week, some one or two or three um, hostesses or hosts would have had an open house kind of salon setting that, that people could, could come to. Um, so, you know, when they were in those kinds of situations, they could then seek out other um, political figures or try to tap the rumor mill and then see what, um, what might be news. But then they would also have fun. You know, they were playing charades and card games and uh, society <laughs> parlor games. I'm just trying to picture. I'm just trying to picture Mitternick playing charades. <laughs> oh, you should. You should very much. <laughs> actually, yeah, he actually had the reputation of being a bit, maybe too much of a of a bon vivant, and he. <laughs> In some quarters, lost a little bit of credit. He was um, directing a play for the court, for example, um, in, this, in this period. And it's kind of this Orientalist monstrosity, the, the Pasha of Soren, uh, bar- borrowed from, from the French, um, which is not necessarily popular in all circles. Too. And now I'm thinking about the American Secretary of State arranging a play. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, it's just things change, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So about these uh, soirees that they put on, did, did women were women in charge of these things? Did they arrange these for the most part? Um, very often they did. Um, one interesting thing about salon culture in Vienna, though, compared to the, the more often studied situations in uh, Paris or uh, Berlin, for example, is that men sometimes were the centers of the salon culture. Um, most famously, this was the case with this octogenarian figure, the Prince de Lien, uh, who originally had come from Habsburg possessions in the Low Countries and then they would be Belgium. Um, and he had for decades been a uh, Picture of the social scene there, there in Vienna. Um, but he was not the only one, and this was even magnified somewhat by the fact that several of the statesmen who were in town for the Congress, including people like um, Talleyrand and Castlereagh, were also setting up essentially salon sociability for for guests while they were there. Um, you know, they would go to other people's salons as well, including those run by some of the ladies. But um, they also kind of wanted to do something to attract people to their establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the case of Lord Castlereagh, though, it is important to remember that really the person who was running his 
you know, open house or salon, as, as one wants to call it, uh, was Lady Castlereagh, mm-hmm. his, his wife. Um, and, you know, a lot of the people who would go there would kind of speak of going to Lady Castlereagh's, not necessarily to Lord Castlereagh's. Um, so that she, she was an important feature of, of that. Um, and part of the draw, I think, for, for people to want to go, uh, especially, as you say, if they were looking to have a little fun and save off boredom, as well as, you know, just look for the best chance to uh, hear what the English delegation might be saying about this or that issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you're going to have a party, you have to figure out who to invite. And if there are 10,000 people in town, you can't invite them all. So uh, was there a kind of politics of invitation? There was, to some extent, you know, even the open houses, um, it's kind of open house for those who've already been invited in, mm-hmm. and not necessarily open doors for those who aren't quite of the right circle. So uh, invitations or networking were, were very important in determining you know, who, who would get into various places. Some of the Viennese high aristocracy who were often very proud of their, you know, X number of generations of noble ancestry uncontaminated by uh, anything less than a prince or a count or or what have you, um, did actually remain fairly exclusive. And so some of the foreigners in particular were grousing a little bit about not necessarily being invited everywhere. But many of the other um, salons of the statesmen, of even some of the other Viennese aristocrats, were fairly open to um, to many of the Congress visitors, and we didn't have to be uh, noble to get in. Um, you know, if you could look the part, dress the part, you know, speak fairly fairly well, you know, from having a good education, or certainly if, say, you know, you were one of these writers or artists or musicians or composers uh, who had some kind of cultural claim to, to fame, then you could be very, very welcome at, at these at these places. Mm-hmm. And just to, to respond to the one the one comment, it is true for the most part that you know you can't invite ten thousand people. But it is also important to remember that um, a few of the larger festivities and balls did actually get up close to those numbers. So that the largest <laughs> of the imperial uh, balls that was thrown or kind of early in the Congress in, in October did have tickets for somewhere between ten thousand and twelve thousand guests. So including many of those, uh, you know, of the, the foreigners who were in town as guests, but also including quite a number of kind of the citizenry of Vienna. And again, not just the aristocrats, but, you know, potentially a little bit farther down the, the social scale into the middle middle classes. Uh-huh. You know, but again, if you kind of had your Sunday best suit that you could put on, they were happy to, to see you there. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So having read a lot of Tolstoy, I can tell you, uh, at least my impression is, is that the best thing that can happen at a soiree, in the sense it's a little bit like going to a stock car race, you hope there's a crash. Uh, so uh, scandals, were there scandals at these things that were covered by broadsheets and stuff like that? You know, X sleeping with Y or, uh, you know, Z offending Q or anything like that? You know, the, um, I think in... London, there was already a little bit of kind of the scandal mongering in the press, but not, you know, nothing like today's tabloids. Uh-huh. 
and on the continent, there really wasn't so much of that. Um, so there were plenty of scandals and much scandalous behavior, but it would be something that was talked about. Um, you know, it might be what's being talked about much more even than the politics at these various mm-hmm. salons or, or parties, um, but not necessarily getting into print. For historians, the reason why we can still know or at least guess at so much of, of this is partly through having you know various memoir accounts or letters, diaries from, from the period and so on that we can sift through, some of which are reliable, some of which may be a little less so on, on some of these rumors. Um, but the Habsburg police spies were also exceedingly active, hyperactive, we could probably say, um, in, in this period. They had hired on a lot more informants for the Congress and tried to get them into as many different social situations as they could so that they wouldn't miss anything you know, of potential political importance for the government. And so, unfortunately... Um, in the early part of the 20th century, a lot of the spy reports in the police ministry burned mm. and were destroyed. But two historians had already um, published a fairly large number of these these documents. So there's about three volumes worth, mm-hmm. um, and over a thousand pages worth that have survived. And a lot of these, in addition to trying to you know, give the government the new, latest news about this or that rumor relating to politics did have a lot of the scandalous information. And in fact, there were uh, some of the spies who, who were basically assigned to certain figures, you know, to follow around the King of Denmark or Tsar Alexander even and report on who, who he saw and what he did. And, you know, this often did mean like, <laughs> who they were visiting to sleep with and at what time early, early, you know, the next morning he um, he left the ladies' chambers and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's too bad those things burnt. So I'm glad you mentioned the police because one of the things that always comes up when there is a diplomatic congress of some sort of security, how, how did the Habsburgs or did the Habsburgs uh, try to protect uh, these people? And were there attempted assassinations or threats or anything like that? Um, there was not a lot of security for these matters, you know, except insofar as the police did keep an eye on, um, you know, who's reporting as coming into town, you know, because this is a period when you do, or at least kind of expected to report in, mm-hmm. like in the United States, because sure. you just kind of uh, show up at the, the hotel and uh, no one knows that you're not still at home. <laughs> and so, you know, if you were a known Bonapartist agent or radical from Italy coming into Vienna, you know, you were going to have someone keeping an eye on you in, mm-hmm. in all likelihood. So there was that kind of that level of security. But I don't think they were worried about assassinations as much. I think they were most worried about was the fact that um, Napoleon's wife, who was the daughter of the Emperor of Austria, had by this time made her way back to Vienna. She was not particularly persona grata uh, and was kept off to the side in Schönbrunn Palace out in, way out in the suburbs instead of, um, you know, in the thick of things in, in Vienna. And that was bad enough, but even worse was the fact that her son with Napoleon 
the king of Rome, as he had previously been known as the heir to the throne, um, was was there as well. And so what they were rather paranoid about was whether Bonapartist agents, maybe even one directly from Napoleon himself, from his exile on Elba, were going to try to uh, kidnap his son and you know reunite him. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he was a bit of a you know a pawn or a hostage for Napoleon's good behavior, even though they weren't saying that, but you know it did somewhat have that have that effect, at least from Napoleon's point of view. So he definitely, if possible, wanted to get both his wife and above all his son back with him, and maybe also already thinking ahead that he was not going to stay on on Elba for mm-hmm. forever, and maybe not even for a whole year before he would uh, try his his luck again. Mm-hmm. So again, on the topic of, well, it's not exactly police. Uh, it, it seems to me that if you're going to be in residence for a long time with people you're negotiating with, you're going to want to spy on them, uh, try to read their mail, that kind of thing, you know, uh, put informants uh, into their circle, uh, you know, and it seems like there's would be some opportunity to do this to give you some leverage during the negotiations. Do you have any evidence of that going on other than, you know, these, these Habsburg police spies? Um... I mean, it's mainly the Habsburg police spies. Um, you know, otherwise, the fact that you could socialize with so many people and take advantage of their indiscretions, um, you know, meant that you could get pretty good information. Some of the other governments were also, you know, maybe trying to intercept mail, but as far as I can tell, it was mainly the Habsburgs who were able to do that. And the better organized other governments were able to avoid having their their mail and diplomatic documents seized and read, you know, steamed open and deciphered and then sneaked back into the envelope, that, that routine, mm-hmm. um, by having special couriers who, who they trusted. And usually they would manage to get through every once in a while. You know, they would be... Uh, robbed, essentially, you can kind of guess who maybe was behind the robbing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for their money, but for their diplomatic pouch, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, but they were somewhat well protected, and, and the, they also, at the same time, though, had to worry about the Habsburg spies, you know, riffling through the waste paper baskets. And, and so, you know, the better, uh, cleverer delegations tried to be very good about you know really shredding well or burning documents that they, they didn't want copied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know there wasn't quite as much of I guess maybe the you know counterintelligence going on, and everyone just kind of knew that they needed to be very careful. Those who didn't have access to these special couriers, you know, kind of would tell their correspondents, look. This probably isn't a secure means of communication, so take that into account, and I'll tell you more when we see each other next. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a, a Russian historian, I guess, and, and mm-hmm. I always wondered about this. Why did Tsar Nicholas decide, I mean, Tsar Alexander decide to come himself? Um, I would say that he uh, wouldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> Um, I wouldn't have either. (laughs) Well, he loved the parties and the dancing. Um, Being able to escape the court etiquette 
which was rather oppressive, and and St. Petersburg or Moscow was made even somewhat more oppressive by the somewhat you know dicey relations with the uh, aristocrats and and gentry uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. You know, his father had been assassinated. Right. Um, that's how he he came to the throne. Um, so you know, kind of being outside Russia was sometimes attracted to him. Being away from the court etiquette mm-hmm. was attracted to him. He, as I say, he loved the the partying and the celebrations, and apparently, yes, uh, occasionally, um, you know, mistresses. Though this also is the period when he's discovering religion, kind of evangelical fundamentalist style religion, which is uh, significant too. Um, and then he loved uh, parades and the military. That was something that he really did inherit from from his his father. Um, so the fact that there would be all of these massive troop reviews and uh, celebrations of the peace that would involve uh, impressive military displays that was also something that huh. was attractive to him. And in fact. The Habsburgs kind of planned with that in mind because a lot of their big festivities, Tsar Alexander was really their main target audience to to try to impress. Mm-hmm. But the other reason why he wanted to be here, and the diplomatic historians I'm sure would say it's more important reason, um, I'll put it alongside the others that I've just been mentioning, is the fact that unlike most of the other rulers who did usually leave much of the decision-making or setting of policy to their foreign secretaries or, um, you know, main statesmen. Tsar Alexander pretty much reserved the right to make all these decisions himself and even sometimes to negotiate personally with either other rulers, like um, Kaiser Franz, the, the Emperor of Austria, or with uh, the statesman, so that um, he had apparently some really uncomfortable interviews with uh, Metternich and and Castlereagh in particular, uh, you know, where things were getting pretty nasty, and it was obviously difficult for Metternich or Castlereagh, even though they were to some extent protected by their government, you know, to tell the Tsar of Russia what they really thought about what he was saying. (laughs) Uh, but apparently, you know, even they would, would yell back at him when he was yelling at them. And then complain afterwards, of course, that this made normal diplomacy almost impossible. Yeah. yeah. But that has accounted for some of Alexander's bad press since then, that he was not playing according to the rules. But I also think that we should take Alexander more seriously as a political figure, as a, a diplomat, um, and not always one whose ideas were, uh, you know, wrong or crazy or making things more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to give an example of that, he was one of the ones, for example, who was putting pressure not to be too harsh on France and the various peace settlements. And he did encourage the um, the granting of a constitution in, in France mm-hmm. when the Bourbon king came back so that they wouldn't have to give up all of the um, liberty and equality that they had gained in the revolutionary and Napoleonic period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just if you want an example of maybe a decision that he strongly influenced that wasn't such a great idea, he was the one who was pushing most strongly to let Napoleon have this little island empire of Elba. Mm -hmm. When a lot of the other statesmen were saying, 
excuse me, this is way too close to the coast uh, of Italy, if nothing else, but even potentially of France. So that, you know, from the point when Napoleon was put there, they were also rather worried that he might not stay there. And that they blamed Alexander for. They were right to be worried. Um, yeah. So, but before we, the, the reason I asked this question about Alexander is, is that I, I kind of wondered again about a logistical question, and that is how. Well, I guess the question could be put like this: Were the other people who were sent, and that is uh, Metternich and um, Hardenberg, and I'm forgetting Talleyrand and these other people, uh, were they plenty potentaries, or did they have to communicate with their capitals occasionally? Um, well, see, that's one of the other things that makes the Congress of Vienna so interesting. Um, they were usually plenipotentiaries, so they had full powers to negotiate, which still doesn't mean that they wouldn't need to confer with their rulers to make certain kinds of decisions or, or agreements you know, before they actually signed, signed on the bottom line and had read all the fine print and so on. Um, but because so many of the rulers were in Vienna with the main statesmen, that meant they could confer very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to wait for weeks for information to get back. The, um, you know, and for Metternich, obviously he was in the, his own capital yeah. with his ruler who, who was there. Um, but, you know, Alexander being there could help expedite things. The Prussian king was there. Uh, several other royal figures or rulers of you know, smaller German states and so on were there. The two main exceptions, which is great for historians, one on that just a second, but the two main exceptions were Castlereagh and uh, Talleyrand. Because Louis, having just come back to Paris, I think rightly realized that he should stay there and try to consolidate his power, not immediately head off to Vienna. So he, with not entirely full trust, sent off Talleyrand and a couple of chosen uh, royalist uh, figures to be part of the delegation to, to Vienna with pretty full powers, but uh, Louis had definitely had a strong role as well in setting some of the, the parameters for what French policy would be. Um, but it, it, it meant that um, Talleyrand did have to write back and wait for instructions sometimes from, mm-hmm. from Paris, uh, as Castlereagh did uh, with the British, where he was uh, usually writing back to Lord Liverpool, the, the prime minister, and then Liverpool would confer with other members of the cabinet or, or sometimes with the Prince Regent. Mm-hmm. And um, this is great for historians because it meant there was this extensive correspondence, which you know was ultimately published, at least in part, if not in whole. Um, so it has prolonged been some of the main sources for, for the Congress. Um, it has also meant, though, that for people who were relying especially on the printed sources, published sources, that maybe there's been some overemphasis on the point of view or the role of Castlereagh and Talleyrand. Because um, it does kind of make a difference sometimes who you know your main sources are and the kinds of judgments you come to about about the negotiations and, mm-hmm. and the events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did wonder about that because... You know, one one of the things that I find odd about the Congress, Congress is that you have this mix of uh, um, of foreign ministers, effectively, and sovereigns. I mean, did they all sit in the room together and talk? I mean, despite the fact that they weren't 
peers? Um, you know, at some of the big parties, they might have all been in the same room, but not necessarily all together. You know, and that would have been dozens among hundreds or thousands mm-hmm. then at that point. But in terms of, you know, kind of behind closed doors negotiations, there was never a meeting that brought together the delegates of even the, the top delegates of all of the various uh-huh. states. And that was one of the things that some of the ones from the smaller powers complained about. And it was not even that frequent that, you know, large gatherings would happen. And usually when you did get together, at least the main delegates of the, the main powers, um, it was of, say, the four main allies, Russia, Prussia, Britain, and uh, Austria, and then sometimes with the addition of France, uh, Spain, Portugal, and Sweden would occasionally be brought in for, for some, some purposes uh, with their delegates. But it wouldn't be the rulers in the same room as the statesmen. And that was, in fact, the one you know, rule of diplomacy that even Tsar Alexander um, obeyed. So that he would kind of in private negotiate with even statesmen sometimes, as I say, in uncomfortable circumstances. But he didn't try to show up at these meetings of the statesmen mm-hmm. when they were negotiating. Mm-hmm. He relied on his you know, designated plenipotentiaries uh, and then... Foreign, foreign secretary and so on. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot more sense to me, knowing what I do about the way the Russian court and status system worked. Um, uh, but before we depart uh, these matters, so everything is going swimmingly until uh, Napoleon comes back. <laughs> but how did that affect things? You know, the hundred days. How did what, how did people react to that? Uh, they were shocked. Flummoxed, sometimes afraid, um, but it was also in some ways more an annoyance than anything. And I, I don't want to use the word annoyance in um, a way that kind of deprecates things, because what they knew it meant was that it was quite possible, especially after a few weeks went by and Napoleon did make it all the way back to Paris. You know, they knew it meant that there would be more war, and they knew that meant partly that the already shaky finances would be worse, and it meant that thousands more men were going to die. And they did, you know, believe it or not, care about such things. They were not happy about that, even though they were quite confident that they were going to be able to defeat Napoleon in relatively short order this time. The um, forces that would, within a few months, be able to be Remobilized and arrayed against him were just going to be too great. So, you know, they weren't that afraid, but they, you know, they were certainly disturbed by this. Mm-hmm. But the other thing um, that needs to be said is that some historians over the years have made it seem like it was Napoleon's return that suddenly broke the deadlock of the difficult negotiations that were going on at the Congress about not least the dispensation of the Polish territories and of Saxony and Germany. Um, But that's just not right. Um, The decisions had all been made. They were still kind of ironing out details of the agreements when, when Napoleon returned. But Basically, things were moving ahead very quickly already before his, his return. Mm-hmm. 
And the main difference it made probably was that they really were the main piece of the puzzle of the settlement that was still outstanding was the constitution for the German states to create a German confederation. So they really did kind of light a fire under the German delegates to try to get that completed before they would uh, have a decisive battle with with Napoleon Mm -hmm. to try to have that out there already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, his 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 role in the Congress has, has certainly been exaggerated, I would say, by by some. Mm. So let's return to, or let's open the topic of, I guess I should say, sort of how to put it, general interpretations. So uh, I think the textbook interpretation of the results of the Congress of Vienna are that the four major powers were. Uh, they ignored nationalism and didn't like liberalism, and you see this in uh, everything they did. Um, it, it, I may be wrong about that. Maybe things have changed since I studied the Congress of Vienna, <laughs> but it was a return of the old regime. You know, it was conservatism ascendant. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, no, I don't think you're you're wrong. Um, Historians had kind of adopted maybe a little bit of a middle position where they would say, you know, look, we know that the Congress, the figures there, realized that they couldn't actually go back to pre-1789, before the revolution, but that essentially they were reactionary and were trying to be as counter-revolutionary as possible to get back, you know, as close to pre-revolutionary circumstances as they could. Um, And I disagree with that view pretty strongly. It's one of the main things I try to emphasize in in the book, that yes, they did not, um, you know, support the idea of creating nation states in Germany or Italy that would have pleased the minority of uh, German or Italian nationalists at at that time. But they did, in fact, take nationality much more into account, including in places like Poland, than historians have usually considered. And then maybe even more importantly on the question of liberalism. Uh, You know, here I think it's important to remember that liberal in the way that the term was used in this period meant a middle position between the the left wing, the Jacobins, the revolutionaries or radicals, and then the conservatives, the reactionaries. And so the the, um, settlement really did push a little bit more towards that that liberal middle, or what one could also maybe call reform conservatism, um, in, in the way that they set things up. So that if you look more closely... It's not just in France when the Bourbon King comes back that there's a constitutional settlement, but there's really a a wave of constitutional documents in 1814, 15, 16 associated with the Vienna settlement um, that's greater than almost any other period in European history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that really has to be recognized. It's not seen as just a reaction and a conservative settlement that was imposed by force on unwilling populations. The governments were really trying to offer quite a number of carrots, uh, you know, as well as sticks, um, to get popular enthusiasm, even, or at least acquiescence in these these peace settlements. 
and you know, not least, um, given how much the borders were changing and the rulers were changing, you know, again, that half at least of Europe's population was going to see regime change in this in these years. Um, the religious rights of various groups who might either be becoming minorities or even if they were still uh, the majority religious denomination in a certain area, but the ruler was going to be of a different uh, religion, you know, especially Protestant Catholic, uh, you know, their rights needed to be protected. So um, there, were, there was quite a bit of consideration of the, the rights, and even using the language of rights, uh, for for the populations who were being shunted around. Yes, a little bit like cattle trading. So you know, there's still um, you know some unpleasant aspects about the the uh, international relations of, of this period. But it, it's not as strongly reactionary or conservative as as has often been portrayed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know in the case, well, I think I know in the case of Alexander, it's been a long time since I thought about these things, that he uh, was, I don't know if he was a fan of constitutionalism, but he certainly dabbled in it. And he gave the polls a constitution, if I recall. So, yes. uh, and, and he was, well, at least the Muscovites or Russians were known to be quite conservative. So if that's conservative, then I don't know what conservative is. Um, so if he, even they were interested in it, uh, it I mean, the, the sort of traditional view would seem to be somewhat off base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the traditional view sometimes said, well, okay, Alexander was too liberal. The others feared that about him, actually, because mm-hmm. he was fan of constitutions. Uh, but when you look at it, even Metternich has supported the idea of the constitution in France. There were other situations. He didn't want something necessarily to be called a constitution or to have too <laughs> many concessions to... Uh, representative government or pop, certainly popular sovereignty was one of the things that they really tried not to include wherever possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but even Metternich, um, you know, was a supporter of a lot of these constitutional settlements that would guarantee some kinds of rights for the populations and that especially were designed to try to prevent the possibility that some of the rulers here and there around Europe would go in this real restorationist, conservative, reactionary direction, because, um, you know, they did want to prevent future revolution, and they realized that people who were too reactionary would often provoke revolution. So they they wanted to try to keep the populations satisfied as much as they could, and that even goes for, you know, for Metternich. They weren't wrong about that either. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so this is a difficult question what's the legacy of the Congress of Vienna I mean you know there's there's disagreement about that too um, some have you know seen it as so much ignoring liberalism or nationalism or both that it was just borrowing trouble for the future obviously I tend not to to, to that that view um but then there's also uh, you know another side that emphasizes that certainly if you compare the Vienna settlement of 1815 to the roughly speaking the Versailles treaties of 1919 <laughs> to early 1920s, that the legacy looks a lot uh, healthier. Yeah. Uh, but it did seem to provide. Yeah, you know, it did provide a lot better foundation for yeah. stability and and peace over a long period, yeah. at least up until the Crimean War, 
in the 1850s, but arguably the, the real base elements of the Vienna settlement lasted through the period of the Congresses in the 1870s and 80s, you know, up to close to the First World War, by which time things had really broken down. Yeah. You know, and not least the fact that the um, the victorious allies had not punished France so much. Yeah. Uh, at the time, and were relatively tolerant and had supported something like the Constitution, mm-hmm. meant that you know, there was much better chances for peace than there were after, say, the Franco-Prussian War, um, or then, again, uh, after the First World War. Mm-hmm. It's the, the victor's peace being part, part of the problem, really. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't recall very well, because I haven't looked at the material in a long time, but it, it seems to usher in a, a, a period of of great peace for a very long time. If you discount the Franco-Prussian War, I suppose, and, you know, the other wars of German unification and maybe Crimea, and I suppose the Russians fought the Turks a couple of times. Um, and then there were little Balkan wars before 1914. Uh, Europe was pretty peaceful, wasn't it? Yes. Um, especially, it was particularly especially, good. I was going to say, especially compared to the earlier period. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was particularly good at preventing major wars and wars among the great powers. Uh, there were smaller scale conflicts, usually having to do with uh, revolutions um, in the 1820s, the 1848 revolution, particularly when the Russians did have to come in and help save the Habsburg Empire mm-hmm. uh, from the, especially the Hungarian revolution in 1848-49. Um, so, you know, there were these other instances, and again, if you are emphasizing the role of the increasingly conservative Vienna powers in uh, damping down liberal or nationalist movements, you know, especially by the 1840s or so, say, then, um, you know, the legacy looks a little bit different, and, um, you know, the, the conflicts look a little bit different, just like there was quite a bit of export of conflict outside of Europe, mm-hmm. so that, you know, there are all of these Queen Victoria's little wars uh, going on and other colonial conflicts, and mm-hmm. uh, particularly the second half of the, the 19th century, yeah, I think, one I should think... not ignore. But, um, so I, I, I tend to be among those emphasizing that the, the Vienna settlement did create a pretty good framework for peace and avoiding major conflicts in the, uh, in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think your point about the settlement um, creating an atmosphere in which all of the major powers felt that a kind of a large war on uh, Europe proper was um, something to be avoided is a very good one. I just read this book by a fellow named Ate called The July Crisis, which is about mm-hmm. uh, July 1914. It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. Uh, and he goes in great detail Um concerning the correspondence between the major players, which is voluminous. And one of the things that comes out of that correspondence is how much they just thought that a major war on the continent was unthinkable. That it just couldn't happen. That even totally sort of like the last minute, they were like, oh, well, this isn't going to happen because we don't do this. <laughs> and then and it happened. Then they they were like, yeah, then it happened. They were just, I was kind of surprised. They were like, oh, my God. And, and you know, th- there are moments in it when these major statesmen, and I, I don't know if Kaiser Wilhelm or anybody, but like they cry when they realize that it's going to happen because it hadn't happened in a very, very, very long time. So, mm-hmm. 
And that yeah. was even before they really knew what it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, that's right. How exactly. long and yeah. how bloody it would be. Right. They, they had were, forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. They were what like, the people in Vienna had not, you know, the lessons of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. But, right. You know, because the Napoleonic Wars also had a couple of million casualties, yeah. Uh, yeah. which proportionally it was almost as bad as the First World War. Yeah. yeah. And had, you know, wrecked Europe for a couple of decades. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a long-lasting lesson that yeah. they that they learned. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. So, well, thank you very much for spending a, a lot of time with us, uh, Brian. Uh, let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Uh, this is maybe going to sound a little boring, but um, because it is the bicentennial years of 2014-2015, uh, there is a lot more interest in the Congress of Vienna these days than there probably would have been otherwise. So in that sense, you know, the book is well-timed, not entirely coincidental. Um, But it means that certainly for this year, um, I'm mainly working on various talks at conferences here and there and a couple of other um, article uh, article topics that were kind of related to the research on the book, but that you know didn't go into the book. So, for example, uh, working on an article that deals with the abolition of the slave trade and the problem of the Barbary corsairs taking European captives, which um, was dealt with a little bit at the Congress. So, I talk about that aspect of it in the book, but. Um, it's also spilled over into various discussions in the years after the Congress mm-hmm. as part of these negotiations to try to keep conflicts from building up. And um, so, you know, I, I'm working on an article finishing that on the abolition of the slave trade and, and Barbary Carceres. Um And then basically June eight, uh, 2015, there'll be a big uh, conference going on in Vienna to celebrate the bicentennial. And I think after that, things, I'll be there. And I think uh, after that, things may start to settle down and I can start to turn to uh, kind of the next the next project. Yeah. Yeah. No, I certainly could understand that. Um, yeah, I can understand that. Well, keep up it's the good, good work. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, it is a good problem to have. Yeah, being very popular. Yeah, it's a good problem to have is right. Well, keep up the good work on the topic. I think it's fantastic and very interesting. And, you know, we're very happy to have had you on the show today. I was very happy to uh, to be here. Thank you for, right. for having me on. Great. And let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast, uh, you've been listening to New Books in History, and I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel. And thank you very much for tuning in. I don't think people tune in anymore or downloading or whatever one does. And I hope that you have a great week.